HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Well, I'm happy to because, you know, our history is often uh, in between the pages of the book. In between the pages of the history book, uh, certainly in any of the schools and uh, sometimes even in our families. And so uh, Juneteenth happened when the Emancipation Proclamation was enacted in January of 1863, and as a military intervention, it freed Africans who were enslaved in the South and enabled them to travel north to seek liberation, except, Nicole, in Texas, where cotton was king, and the enslavers there kept their mouths shut about it so that Africans would continue to work and their unpaid labor would continue to turn a profit there in Texas on that cotton. And so on or about June 19th, 1865, a full two and a half years later, General Gordon Granger of the Union Army sailed into Galveston Harbor in Texas to spread the word that the time had come for our ancestors to walk away from the plantation, return to their life of self-actualization, and begin anew. So it was on or about June 19th. Right away, the holiday was Juneteenth. That was food historian Jane Bell speaking on hot grease. You'll hear more from her in just a moment. Juneteenth was officially recognized as a federal holiday days before June 19, 2021. For the occasion's second anniversary, we'll talk with historians, chefs, and business owners about what significance the day holds for them. Some will be celebrating with red foods and family gatherings. Others seek atonement and focus on giving back to their communities. We'll look at Juneteenth's past 
and ahead at upcoming preparations for the holiday. No matter when or where, good food unites each of these conversations and commemorations. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and 3. This year, you can celebrate Juneteenth with the first ever cookbook specifically themed around the holiday from food writer Nicole A. Taylor. Nicole will appear on HRN's A Taste of the Past in June to talk about Watermelons and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations. This won't be Nicole's first time on HRN. From 2011 to 2013, she hosted Hot Grease, a food culture show about the American South focused on reclaiming culinary traditions, cooking at home, and eating as a political act. In the decade since Nicole's first show aired, Juneteenth has risen in visibility. We'll take a look at an episode from June 2011, talking about Juneteenth's growing recognition and diving into its traditions. Today, we'll be talking Juneteenth and the 75th episode of Hot Grease. What is Juneteenth? On the phone to answer the question and talk food of the African diaspora is Rachel Finn. Rachel is the founder of Roots Cuisine, an organization dedicated to black foodways around the globe. Rachel, welcome to Hot Grease. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Rachel, would you say that the Juneteenth celebrations are still very underground? Um, I don't think so. I think people are more and more aware of them now. Uh, I, I think particularly in the last few years, um, maybe like the last five years, uh, people are um, know that, that the holiday exists. They're starting to learn more about what what actually happened, and I think, you know, periodically you'll see uh, articles in newspapers or magazines or little blurbs or something about Juneteenth, so I think that um, it's a little bit more, it's not, I mean, certainly everyone doesn't know about them, but it's much more common or much more, I guess people know a little bit more these days. So I'm going to close my eyes as you describe the kitchen table on June 19th in the early 1900s in Galveston, Texas. What, what, what were people eating? Well, well, first, I think, I mean, there, there certainly may have been um, in people's homes, private homes, there may have been, like, special dinners or, and things like that. But Juneteenth is usually, like, a community celebration, towns, large gatherings of people, and, you know, in a, in a park or, you know, at a church or something, and people would sort of bring, prepare various dishes that I guess today we sort of connect or we would call, like, soul food, basically. So, you know, fried chicken, I'm sure there'd be plenty of barbecue, there'd be, you know, pies, cakes, potato salad, beans, okra, all kinds of things that, you know, we, we traditionally, black eyed peas, things we traditionally um, 
um, associate with Black Southern cooking. We learn more about the history of Juneteenth in a 2013 Hawk Reese episode featuring food historian Janine Bell, who you heard from at the top of this episode. On the phone to talk Juneteenth, Juneteenth particular in RVA, is one of Richmond's cultural ambassadors and founding president and artistic director of Alegba Folklore Society. Miss Janine Bell, welcome to Hot Grease. Hey, how are you? I am great. Janine and Nicole dig into the historical significance of food for Juneteenth and for African-American celebrations in general. What are your thoughts or what are your um, what's your take in terms of food, how food plays a role in Juneteenth celebrations um, across the country? Well, you know, food, food waste traditions really undergird our story as Africans in America, as American Africans, as black people. Um, Food traditions and the whole consumption of food in African societies is communal, is earthy, is spirit, is, uh, is tradition. And we brought that sensibility with us when we came during that forced migration. And so when we're talking about culture and, and Juneteenth um, and uh, black people in America, you, you have to have food in it. You have to. It's, again, it's family. It's the ancestors upon whose shoulders we stand. It's our elders who have their special recipes. Um, it's the foods that you look forward to when you went to Mama Jay's, the candied yams and the catfish and so forth. All of these things, each, each item of food that we can find on a, on a table will, uh, will uh, serve as a symbolic and tasty uh, slice of history. In Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations, you can find recipes like peach jam and molasses glazed chicken thighs, roasted nectarine sundaes, beef ribs with fermented harissa sauce, and stories about the holiday and its history. At some parties this Juneteenth, you can expect creative vegan and vegetarian takes on old-school classics. Anna Canny talks to soul food scholar and HRN Hall of Famer Adrian Miller about how plant-based soul food unites tradition with creativity. When Adrian Miller first started studying soul food, he set out on a research journey across 35 cities in the U.S. He thought he knew what to expect— He'd grown up eating soul food and barbecue in Denver's historically black neighborhood. Things like spare ribs and juicy smoked turkey legs. But in some cities, he was in for a surprise. When you start traveling around to a place, you ask locals, hey, you know, where's a good place to get soul food? And um, when I went to certain cities like uh, the Bay Area um, in Atlanta, people suggested a vegan place. And I, of course, I was skeptical at first. When Adrian sat down for his first meal at Solely Vegan out in Oakland, California, the plate was familiar. All the regular staples, with a twist. I had um, southern fried tofu that was shaped to look like fried chicken, vegan mac and cheese, and vegan collard greens with a cayenne pepper lemonade. As he started to dig in, his initial skepticism slowly faded away. 
you know, I bit into that chicken and the skin, quote unquote, was expertly fried. I mean, it was a great crust. And I was like, oh, this is pretty good. And then the collard greens were as good as any that I've ever had, because once you know how to season, you can make food taste delicious and you don't even miss the meat. When Adrian returned to his research, he was surprised to find that plant-based food was not a new thing offered by a handful of trendy restaurants. Once I knew what vegan was, as I started looking back and got um, detailed information about how enslaved people ate, it's very close to what we call vegan today. I mean, um, for the most part, enslaved people were eating seasonal vegetables, dried or pickled vegetables. And if they had meat, maybe there was just a little bit to season the vegetables, like some kind of dried, salted, or pickled or smoked meat. But it was not like we think of meat today, like an entree. It was just there as a flavoring agent. But for the most time, they didn't have that. And that history goes back even further. So we're talking about a very plant-based diet, which harkens back to Africa, because um, for a lot of people in West Africa, um, you know, the, the plant, a plant-based diet is the main diet. And then meat is just a kind of like a supplement thing or a celebration thing. The deep roots of veganism in African-American foodways surprised Adrian. He came to the realization that the story of soul food could not be told without veganism. So I, so I saw this current that went way, way back. So I had to change my own thinking because I think of uh, vegan. Initially, I thought of vegan food as a departure from soul food, but it's really a homecoming. Though veganism in African-American cuisine and soul food is nothing new, Adrian says that the wealth of vegan and vegetarian options has grown since the late 70s and 80s in a quest for healthier soul food. Around the same time, some civil rights activists were promoting veganism as a political choice. Today, some culinary and political scholars argue that embracing vegan soul food is a way to decolonize the cuisine and resist an oppressive food system. And in the years since Adrian first began his soul food research back in 2014, chefs have continued to expand palates with new seasoning and new proteins and textures like kale bones, which are slow roasted tempeh, and jerk tofu. I personally believe that some of the uh, most creative energy um, in soul food as a culinary category is in the vegan and vegetarian space. Just a lot of interesting things are happening. This Juneteenth, there are sure to be vegan dishes because soul food, like Adrian says, is celebration food. And each vegan and vegetarian bite celebrates both a connection to the past and the creative horizons of soul food's future. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow-cooked for over 30 hours, extracted using traditional Tejona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best tasting, highest quality tequila possible. Their tequilas have received over 20 blind tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their Reposado is soft and balanced with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their Añejo is elegant and velvety 
with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Juneteenth is memorialized through parades led by black cowboys, people firing up their grills, and red foods of all varieties. Autumn Jemison talks to a business owner in the thick of holiday preparation. When celebrating Juneteenth, at least one red food item must be on the table. Red is a staple color intertwined in the holiday because it embodies the sacrifice, resilience, and power the enslaved Africans have. The idea of dying foods came from the Yoruba of Nigeria, Benin, and Togo, and the Congo of Angolia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the Republic of Congo, and Gabon peoples during the Atlantic slave trade. They deeply protected and cherished their homeland colors, so there were still pieces that they could connect them back to their home. Some red foods that are brought to the table are watermelon, red velvet cake, fruit punch, and most importantly, barbecue. With our business being barbecue, we're, we're, we're heavily um, sought after, <laughs> you know, especially for holidays like um, Memorial Day, Labor Day, Juneteenth, Fourth of July. Those are really big barbecue events, event days. So now what happens is we actually have to be more intentional about how we're preparing for Juneteenth. Because now what, what it seems is that more of the country is celebrating it and actually actively looking at how they can support Black-owned businesses. I spoke with Brent Ramirez, co-owner of Smokey John's Barbecue in Dallas, Texas, about how they plan on celebrating and preparing for the holiday. Being an active member in his community, Brent and his brother Juan make serving their people their business. In 2021, Smokey John's gave out school box lunches containing one meat and two sides. The brothers thought it was important to give back to their community, given the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. A few days later, President Biden signed the law making Juneteenth a federal holiday. I was shocked. I was just, honestly, I was shocked. I was like, I I couldn't believe that that got passed as a holiday nationwide, considering that it was something that was specific to Texas. So I was very shocked, um, excited, but just shocked. I, I couldn't believe that it actually got passed. Recognition of the holiday sacrifice came slowly. To be exact, 155 years passed between the liberation of enslaved people in Galveston and the institution of Juneteenth as a national holiday last year. This was a pivotal moment of Black history being translated into American history. And I think for me, it was just a faith builder, uh, personally, that if you keep pushing after something, you know, what, what kind of amazing things can happen. To observe the national holiday's second year, Cities and businesses are planning festivals, activities, and there will be a ton of food. While some places may be adding red foods to their menu, for the occasion, Smokey John's is sticking with what they do best. We don't do anything extra or in particular for Juneteenth because barbecue in and of itself is just such a large part of Juneteenth celebration. We, we will have a Juneteenth slash Father's Day special. And we have a, a bulk package so families that want to celebrate Juneteenth can enjoy 
a bulk meal package to, uh, together. Our hope is that we inspire people to buy the meals that will include multiple people in their family. Brent is busy with prep, but is sure to save some time to give back to his community and make the holiday meaningful. So this year, we, you know, we're really just going to focus on uh, serving and providing good quality food for our customers. There may be some things that we do on social media as far as with our educating the community, um, putting um, just some facts out there. So because a lot of people, um, they follow us on Facebook, Instagram. So I, I think it gives us a platform to be able to just spread more information. Now that we understand that people are actually looking for the information um, and, and are ready, seemingly, seemingly are ready to learn. Um, then I, if that's the case, I think at that point you have to teach. We have um, different organizations that are having Juneteenth events, and we do a lot of donations um, in the community. Um, different churches, schools, different organizations. It's cool to be able to do that for events like this. We've, we've been blessed in this area to where now that people are paying attention to it, and it's it is it's just not the African American community. It's all communities now mm. are are having this mindset of pouring into actual Black-owned businesses. Um, so I think we have to be more of a steward of that at this point. On holidays that require a two-week preparation for a busy weekend, I wondered about the glue that has kept Brent in this industry for over forty years. The reason why I like the barbecue business is because for me, I still feel the sense of connection with my father. I'm reminded of his presence, his attitude, his servant mentality, his caring for others, his caring for customers. And so I get to do the same thing and watch people uh, fall in love with food and fall in love with what we do. And that, that makes it special for me every day. Smokey John's Barbecue cherishes food, faith, and family. The big red words are highlighted on their websites, but also in Brent's daily service at the restaurant. I'm sure all three values will be in abundance on Juneteenth. Honoring Juneteenth takes different forms. For some, commemorating the historic day means gathering with friends and family. For others, like Chef Chris Williams of Lucille's Restaurant in Houston, Juneteenth is a day of service for his community. Baidehi Kudyadi speaks to Chef Williams about how food, community, and service intersect on Juneteenth and beyond. Chef Chris Williams has used his culinary expertise to enrich his community in Houston for years. Whether it is combating food insecurity or improving access to fresh produce, Chef Williams makes an impact on his community every day. Over the past few years, Chef Williams' nonprofit, Lucille's 1913, has partnered with the Emancipation Park Conservancy in Houston to commemorate Juneteenth. Together, they provide over 2,000 meals to community members in need. And as a chef of color, an African-American chef, it's like an opportunity for us to showcase what truly is the genesis of the American culinary scene, period. Because everything that's truly American was born uh, from these hands, you know? And so it's, it's kind of like a reclaiming and a showcasing of things that have been appropriated and, you know, they're, they're being celebrated <clears throat> by, you know, other chefs. But now it gives us an opportunity to really take this platform since now is a national holiday. 
The day also evokes complex emotions for Chef Williams. I'm kind of, I don't want to say I'm an outlier, but I think every day should be a day of service. And I'm not one of the people that really celebrates Juneteenth because I don't believe it's a day to be celebrated. Just like I don't think that decency should be exceptional. For Chef Williams, Juneteenth is a day of remembrance and service. And this commitment to service is rooted in family history. I guess service is just ingrained in my family. It's, it's something that we've always done generations back. Um, same thing that goes with Lucille's approach. And I guess I, guess I kind of mirrored that in my own. Lucille B. Smith was Chef Williams' great-grandmother and was a chef and educator during the Reconstruction era. In the culinary world, Lucille was somewhat of an icon. She created the nation's first all-purpose hot roll mix, and her client list included LBJ, Muhammad Ali, Joe Lewis, and Martin Luther King Jr. Lucille also cared deeply about her community, a trait that Chef Williams embodies in his own work at his restaurant Lucille's and at his nonprofit Lucille's 1913. She started her whole business uh, everything that she does or did was born out of what she knew she was a master of. She was a master of the culinary arts, and she wanted to see how she could use her mastery to benefit her community. And so that's what she did, and it turned into a business. But what was um, what's at the, the base of everything she does was service. And what I've realized without having those lessons, you know, directly articulated to me, just I've just had examples my entire life from my parents and, you know, my family. But what I've, what I've realized is that an investment in the community is an, an investment in yourself and your, your business or whatever you have going on. Those investments were always reciprocated, essentially. And while Juneteenth is an avenue for Chef Williams to serve his community, his work does not end there. The work that we do on Juneteenth is the same work that we do on June 20th. But what we're doing is... We're going after the people that aren't considered, which is typically the African-American community, and we're providing um, meals with dignity to them. And that, that's our mission and that's our purpose. And unfortunately, it's necessary work that needs to happen year round. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Nora Peachin, Anna Canny, Autumn Jemison, Videhi Kudyadi, and Angela Cho. Meet and 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.